0: Good afternoon. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings here in the broadcast studio of the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center at the U.S. Naval Institute. It's July 18th and we just completed the August issue of Proceedings today, our annual Coast Guard-focused issue. So look for that uh, in your mailboxes on the first of the month uh, or online. The uh, online version will be up on the 31st of July. Um, Before I introduce our guests today, I want to highlight a couple things that are coming up here for the Institute First, our essay contest. Uh, it's that time of the year for the annual Marine Corps essay contest. The deadline is coming up soon, 31 August, top prize of $5,000. So if you're interested in the Marine Corps, you got an idea about how to, how to make the Marine Corps better, how to tackle some of the questions that, uh, uh, that have been raised in Force Design 2030, please enter that one. And our annual fiction essay contest, which is co-sponsored with SIMSEC, has a top prize of $500, a deadline of mid-September. And that one is uh, open uh, to military fiction writers. uh, And and we've been getting some great content out of that contest the last couple of years. Uh, All our essay contests are judged in the blind, so a true meritocracy of ideas. And to find out more, just go to our home site, usni.org forward slash essay dash contests, usni.org forward slash essay dash contests. All right, so now I'll introduce our guests. Um, The uh, winner of the 2018 General Prize Essay Contest was a young man named Hunter Styers. He wrote an article titled, The South China Sea Needs a Coin Toss, which we published in the May 2019 issue. Coin meaning counterinsurgency, of course. Hunter followed that article with several more on the topic of free seas, China's illegal activities in the South China Sea, and how the US and our allies could push back. And last year, he brought us a proposal to do a full project on maritime counterinsurgency, including he had enlisted a group of really exceptional authors, many of them who had already written for Proceedings in the past and will continue to do so. So fast forward to now, the Maritime Coin Project kicked off in the July issue, and Hunter Stiers is welcome uh, is with us on the show today. Hunter, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast.
1: Thanks, Bill. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. Our other guest today, joining us from Rhode Island, is Professor Jim Holmes, the J.C. Wiley Chair of Strategy at the U.S. Naval War College. Jim is a former surface Navy, uh, Navy surface warfare officer, a longtime proceedings officer on the show. His article, You Have to Be There, is the lead article in the Maritime Coin Package in the July proceedings. Jim Holmes, welcome back to the show.
2: Hey, thanks, Bill. It's always a treat to be with the Naval Institute.
0: Thanks for being with us. All right. So I'm going to ask a few questions and then I I expect we'll probably get some that will pop in from the audience. Uh, So first question goes to Hunter. Uh, Just for our our listeners, maybe who aren't aware or haven't been paying real close attention uh, to what's happening in the South China Sea, describe for us what China is up to, the illegal activities uh, in the South China Sea.
1: Thanks, Bill. I think that's a, a, a really important uh, issue and a, a terrific topic to start us off. Certainly, when we think about China, we we generally a lot of the attention and a lot of the headlines focuses on the really the development of their high end warfighting capabilities. We hear a lot about uh, the expansion of the People's Liberation Army Navy. We hear about the expansion of their anti access and area denial weaponry. What we don't hear nearly enough about and which is i think really the focus of both the project and really i would argue china's decisive line of effort in the south china sea is its forcible coercion of local civilian mariners in southeast asia fully half the world's fishing fleet operates in the south china sea uh this more than 3.7 million people depend on access to this body of water for their for their daily livelihoods and these civilian, and these, this really large civilian population is being subjected to uh, a really concerted campaign of intimidation and harassment. We see Chinese maritime law enforcement, China Coast Guard, Chinese maritime militia. These guys, they go and they steal fishermen's catch. They will confiscate radios and navigational equipment that is uh, essential to safe operations, uh, especially among, by small craft out in, in this you know, pretty expansive waterway. Uh, we see China, Chinese forces will, uh, for example, they, they will pour gasoline in, fish, in Vietnamese fishing vessels, uh, supplies of drinking water to force them to go back to shore. We see uh, you know, for a, a, at least 10 years, Chinese forces had a regularized system of kidnapping Vietnamese fishermen for ransom, uh, ran, you know, really exorbitant ransoms equivalent to eight times their their annual income and, and as if all of this isn't bad enough you see chinese forces ram and sink people too and, and and perhaps worst of all they they leave people in the water to drown uh just in total contravention of the fundamental law of, among mariners that essentially that you share the water space you try not to hurt people and and when someone is in trouble you help them and in we are seeing this just completely yeah, you know, I write about it in, in the introduction to the project. It's it, it's it is this outrageous desecration of the most again the most foundational law governing conduct among mariners and really just how we relate to each other as people. So, and essentially looking at this and what they are trying to do, and you look at essentially China's, you know, pretty outlandish claim to. Uh, in quote-unquote indisputable sovereignty over ninety percent of the of the South China Sea. Essentially, they're claiming this huge patch of ocean as, using the, this term that they refer, refer to as "blue national soil," and I think that that phrase is really instructive. They're claiming it like land. They are basically advancing this principle that, in contravention to the you know the well-understood law of the sea. Uh, as, as, we, as we have kind of developed it and come to understand it, and China was an integral part in negotiating the codification of customary international law into the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Um, this principle of the freedom of the sea, which is that, you know, that nobody knows, owns the ocean and that whatever states do get in terms of sovereign rights is based on what they own on land. And China is basically saying, no, that's not the law anymore. What we say goes and what we say is we own all of this and we're going to claim it like land. And we get to decide who gets to go there. And so, essentially, if you look at what the definition of this is, I mean, really, what we're talking about is essentially this, this cumulative. And you know, Professor Holmes can talk about this, you know, better than I can. You know, he is the you know the JC Wiley Chair and the JC Wiley Professor of American Strategy at the War College. Um, it, it, this gets into really JC Wiley's discussion of cumulative versus sequential campaigns, and what China is waging is a cumulative campaign of coercion to essentially impose a new set of laws and a new set of political authority on the civilian maritime population while simultaneously declining a conventional force and decisive battle against the military defenders of the established political order, namely us and our friends and our allies. And so we look at, at this. This is really essentially the, de- the essential definition of an insurgency. So they are waging a maritime insurgency. They call it themselves "people's war at sea," which is this Maoist term uh, that we generally refer to as insurgency. Um, in this case, at sea, and uh, so they're really there, and they're working to do this without rising above to the threshold that would generally trigger, you know, a major conventional armed response by the United States and its allies. So they're really kind of synthesizing, their, you know, their two key players in their strategic canon of Sun Tzu, who advances the notion that the the, the height of skill um, in strategy is to win without fighting. And they are synthesizing that with Mao, who is kind of the you know, most successful insurgent in history and wrote, wrote the book on, that everybody uses on how to wage an insurgency. They're synthesizing these two approaches and they're applying them to the maritime domain.
0: Got it. Well, that's uh, that, a great answer. And I think you, you really summed it up very well. And for our listeners, if you go and find Hunter's introduction to this project in the July issue. It's also as uh, tight and succinctly put. Um, So in response to that problem set, that coercion, that intimidation, those illegal activities of what China's up to, uh, to try to take over, to bully its way to uh, supremacy in the South China Sea, we launched this maritime counterinsurgency project. So tell our listeners, just 30,000 foot perspective, What's in the project, and kind of where is it
1: going? Well, thank you, Bill. Um, in terms of the, the the purpose of the project, the, the idea here is to really get the the very the the, the preeminent minds in maritime strategy in the world uh, to begin thinking through this project, and we've done that. I mean, you know, the launch the launch package uh, in the July issue here is. Um, we, we've got you know, Dr. Holmes leading off the project, followed by Jeffrey Till, who, I, my very first day uh, coming to, to work at the Naval War College as a researcher for Dr. Holmes in 2015, uh, I walk into the front office of the Strategy and Policy Department, and they're like, here, read this. And it's, um, and it's Professor Till's book on Sea Power a Guide to the 21st Century. So he, he has this phenomenal article called War with the Lights Off. Uh, then we've got Brian Clark, who's the person that uh, the Navy turns to whenever they're trying to figure out what their future fleet design is. They turn to Brian Clark, um, and he has a really interesting perspective about essentially taking on this notion that we need to be focusing only on the highest end, worst possible case scenario, um, high end fight. He says, actually, no, we should be basically essentially accepting the logic of nuclear deterrence at the high end and calibrating our conventional forces to be prepared to respond to all of the myriad other more likely and less risky ways that China might try to achieve, achieve its objectives both in Taiwan and the South China Sea and in other theaters. And uh, he, he has some, some fascinating recommendations there uh, that are very much worth people's time. Uh, we've got uh, Gary Lehman and, and, and Greg Lewis, who are you know, two fantastic minds. Uh, Gary, Gary Lehman is uh, one of the key minds behind uh, Expeditionary Advanced base Operations, and stand-in forces and these key concepts that are guiding the Marine Corps towards this uh, forces on twenty thirty that uh, the, that uh, General Berger has outlined as part of his vision for where the Marine Corps needs to go. And they they examine where what is the Marine Corps role in this and the, these these evolving Marine Corps concepts. Uh, the, the commandant talks about look, we I don't want to have to fight the next fight, and that we need to be thinking about how do we compete, how do we deter, and you know. It's not, ABO you know, is not this break glass in case of war only. This is much more about how, how can we be there day to day? How can we support our allies and partners? And so they really do, uh, in, in their article, I think that they do a terrific job of really fleshing out what does that mean? What does that look like? Then we've got uh, uh, Captain Brent Sadler, uh, re- re- US Navy retired. Who is a uh, Southeast Asia-focused foreign area officer with a lot of experience in in the Pacific and in uh, global force management and in operational planning and bringing also you know connecting the mil- the military to the political diplomatic el- elements of nat- national power, and so he takes this really interesting look you know in, in his article "Win the Contest for the Rules Sp- for a uh, Rules-Based Maritime Order." He is looking in depth at the impact of really the, also he, he, his discussion is excellent, of the prototype implementation of maritime counterinsurgency, uh, which is the Test 76's successful response to the West Capella incident and lo- understanding how, do, how can we calibrate a maritime counterinsurgency campaign to most effectively support our allies and partners. And then we have uh, Major Brian Kirk, uh, US Marine Corps, who has this phenomenal short story. Uh, What I love about Brian's work, both in this and and other short stories that he's written, is he is so, so effective at communicating the kind of the day-to-day reality and the the flavor of the life on the ground, on the deck plates. And so here he is envisioning, what does a future maritime counterinsurgency operation look like? And so you have this Mark 7 patrol boat, so some future future small combatant with a combined Navy Marine Corps crew, You've got embarked U.S. Coast Guard, embarked Philippines Coast Guard. They're working with the Philippines Coast Guard and Philippines Navy, and they are operating from a forward expeditionary advanced base in Palawan. And then we we see both in the online version specifically, that includes kind of the the opening where you see what does this look like on a day-to-day level and what does the standard form of operations look like? You're working with a Philippines Coast Guard vessel to go and interdict uh, illegal Chinese fishing vessels and enforce uh, and, and Philippine laws in the Philippines exclusive economic zone. And then we envision how the Chinese, m- you know, m- you might wind up in a situation where the Chinese try to set a trap for these guys and they try to escalate both against the civilians and then basically set a trap for the Americans and, and their embarked Filipino partners. So really interesting and, uh, and uh, just a gripping piece of writing. And then looking downfield, we have some absolutely phenomenal thinkers um, who are coming down the pike. I mean, we've got, uh, in, in the August issue, we've got captain Josh Taylor, who is, uh, has a campaign plan for maritime counterinsurgency. Uh, uh, you know, coming up, we've got captain Peter Schwartz. I mean, the architect of the 1980s maritime strategy, uh, and, you know, also a, a really important inspiration for the project. And, you know, in terms of its design, because uh, a lot, a lot of, you know, at least my own thinking as we were kind of putting this together and, you know, um, was essentially how, uh, Bill, you, you, uh, as I'm sure you recall, was how can we do something along the lines, you know, similar to the the, the seminal January 1986 issue of proceedings on the Mar- maritime strategy. And, you know, certainly different because, you know, that was an official Navy product. This is, uh, you know, being done by these, these experts who are, you know, from throughout the naval ecosystem. It's phenomenal, the diversity of thought, really. Um, so that's sort of a, a a broad gist of kind of you know, and you have got plenty more coming down the pike as well. Uh, beyond beyond that, I, I'm so excited to have these you know these just incredible minds. Yeah, it's a great it's a great, project. A great
0: project with with really uh, top notch authors, and as you point out, many of them have already written for proceedings and and will continue. And we uh, we we plan at some point, uh, maybe later this fall, hopefully no later than winter time, having a a maritime security dialogue kind of panel discussion with some of the initial authors, as we've done with the the American Sea Power Project, as we, you know, these ongoing things like last week, Ward Carroll interviewed the, the leaders of naval aviation in a maritime sea power dialogue that we had here uh, at the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center. So we'll, we'll do something like that for this maritime coin project. So excited about that. And then you know, we'll see where this goes, but the conversation is off to a great start. Uh, and as uh, you know, some have already noted, uh, it's been picked up um, not not insubstantially by uh, press, particularly in Asia right now, South China Morning Post, the China Times, the Taiwan. Um, so a couple of different outlets over in Asia have noticed this project and started talking about it. So we hope that that continues. Uh, so Next question, I want to go to Jim and, and this back out to to grand strategy and, and what the nation is facing right now. So there's a lot of problems. You know, turn on NPR, turn on Bloomberg, turn on you know, your favorite news story, whatever it is, Fox News or, or New York Times. You know, the war in Ukraine, uh, infla- hyperinflation, some might say, uh, the, 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 the southwest border problem that the United States faces. Uh, there's a lot of problems facing this nation at this time. So some might say, South China Sea. Why do I care? That's the other side of the of the of the planet. You know, the Chinese are harassing some local fishermen in the South China Sea. Why is that a problem for you know Joe Sixpack for the United States of America?
2: Yeah, thanks, Billy. You know, it's uh... a <laughs> I think that I think possibly the way to look I mean first of all it, when you look at strategy what is it it's 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 basically a process of setting and enforcing priorities you're never going to have enough resources enough uh, intellectual bandwidth and so forth to, to do everything that the nation wants we have a lot of priorities and we just don't have enough no nation has enough uh, resources to accomplish everything it wants to do no matter how worthwhile some of those things may be I think I think possibly the way to to, to put it to the American people is to point out that what is happening in the South China Sea directly impacts on a lot of those other problems especially economic problems what we're talking about if we let if we let china get away with what it is trying to do hunter mentioned hunter mentioned the standard talking point out of beijing that uh, that that china wields indisputable sovereignty over over 90% of the south china sea it's basically claiming the south china sea as land territory beijing will make the laws and regulations and so forth that govern what goes on in that in that body of water if it gets its way that, that is where we are talking about letting the international system, as we've known it since 1945, as founded with the United Nations at San Francisco, at Bretton Woods, and, and all those sorts of things. You're, you're essentially talking about letting a major principle of international law go, and I think, that, I think that you're, you're talking about undercutting the, uh, the foundation of the international system. Think about what the United States strategy has been since the late, since the days of uh, Theodore Roosevelt and Alfred Thayer Mahan and uh, Henry Cabot Lodge—all the big minds of the late 19th and early 20th century. U.S. strategy, U.S. maritime strategy in particular, has always been predicated on access—commercial, military, and diplomatic access—to places we would like to trade, chiefly in East Asia and, and Western Europe. If you start letting, if you start letting coastal states like China or Russia or Iran or whoever, uh, essentially, essentially assign themselves. Jurisdiction, uh, sovereignty over these uh, bodies of water, whereby they may forbid or permit or whatever shipping to go into those bodies of water. You're talking about letting those those states strike at the nature of the commercial system and thus strike directly at American prosperity. And without prosperity, we're not going to accomplish a whole lot. So, I think that I think that uh, I think that's the way to put it to the American people. This is a this is a goal of surpassing importance. And if, you, if we get this right, if we, can, if we can prevent China from actually getting its way, making itself sovereign, essentially declaring state ownership over a major body, a body of water, if we can do that, we set a good precedent. And ultimately, I think we've set ourselves up to start resolving some of these other, especially the economic problems that you mentioned, whether it's, uh, whether it's the supply chain problems we've seen in the last couple of years or whatever. But but yeah, without access to to the rimlands of Western Europe, East Asia, South Asia, we're not going to accomplish a whole lot in the world, and we're going to be a lot poorer for it. So this is a, a top priority.
0: That's a great answer. I would I would add. Uh... Um, not to answer my own question, but I'm going to do that. <laughs> I would add two things, which is one, uh, you know, Hunter mentioned blue territory that the Chinese are looking at the South China Sea as their own sovereign territory, which is not at all different than the way the Russians are looking at Ukraine. Right. It's it's land versus water, but it's the same thing. It is a territorial expansion and illegal uh, seizure of, of territory. Uh, and the other thing I would add is uh, is also the fact that I, I, I probably shouldn't do the math in my head, but, you know, a number of U.S. treaty allies ring the South China Sea, right? So starting with the Philippines, uh, you know, Japan being very close by, Australia being very close by, Thailand being a, a treaty ally as well. And so uh, we're talking about nations who we are, we are, we have, uh, we have, we uh, have, uh, defense priorities with, commitments to, uh, and their sovereignty is being impinged on illegally by China. And so to let that go, to just back away from those commitments would be uh, to your point, Jim, you know, setting a very bad precedent. So
2: yeah, um, that's a great point. I mean, we have no strategic position in the far East without, without our alliances. If we start, if we start betraying our commitments to our alliances, we're basically saying we're basically just shrugging and turning our backs on everything we've done for the last, uh, for the last 80 years or thereabouts. That's yeah. And that's, that's a major, major decision. And if the American people want that, our, our, our leaders in Washington DC should at least put it to them in those terms. This is this is not a small strategic decision we're talking about it's a major one it's of the utmost magnitude
0: yeah amen uh, so Hunter, I'm going next question back to you um, there's been a lot of attention in proceedings about the the Chinese naval buildup the pla Navy um, you know they're on their third aircraft carrier now they've been you know launching warships in into the sea like uh, dumplings into the soup right they are on a a massive building campaign to build a a first world a world class navy, um, and yet this insurgency that they're carrying out of the sea is it involves the navy kind of tangentially, but the main forces are really not the PLA navy. So describe describe the forces that the Vietnamese fishing vessel or the or the Philippine fishing vessel sees that is that is the real problem here. How is this instantiated? on the ground or you know on the water uh, in the south china sea by the chinese
1: sure i i think this so it's been described by a number uh, in a, a couple of different ways and uh by i mean you know you look at people like ryan Mark, martinson and andrew erickson they've done a lot of really terrific work on this dr holmes is you know probably a, a better is it, well, not probably definitely a better qualified um uh, interlocutor on this particular point but the, the gist of it is that they are uh, essentially using this. I mean, it's been described as a cabbage strategy, and I really like Dr. Holmes's term of it's small stick diplomacy. Instead of leading with the navy, as we might be accustomed to in managing an international dispute, the Chinese are we are, are are the leading edge are not the high end war war fighting assets. They are the maritime militia, which are armed fishing boats, uh, either. You know, some, some of them are actual you know fishers, and others are professional militiamen in boats that are meant kind of dressed up to look like fishing boats, and then you've got uh, the China Coast Guard, and it's uh, the China Coast Guard is is very interesting in in, in the sense that it is, uh, and this was something a point that was made at uh, you know we have the the Center for Regular Warfare uh, and Armed Groups um, at the Naval War College held a, a very interesting uh, symposium a few weeks ago, and. You know, some senior Coast Guard officers who have extensive experience operating in the region were talking about how really the China Coast Guard is not a Coast Guard in any really recognizable sense that, uh, as we have come to expect, of a Coast Guard in the modern world. Uh, They are not going and enforcing the laws among Chinese mariners. They are there really to coerce other people. They are not there to help aid other Mariners who are in distress. They are there really to put Mariners in distress. They are um, one of the, they are really one of the primary sources of danger rather than safety and rescue, as you know, a Coast Guard is supposed to do. Um, Coast Guards are supposed to help people. And the China Coast Guard, you see them, you you under, uh, right. we were talking about earlier, they're stealing people's cash, they're ramming people, they're sinking, you know, driving over and sinking people. Um, firing on, on, you know, unarmed civilians, and uh, that you know there was an example of a a Vietnamese vessel that was surrounded by uh, China Coast Guard vessels, and it sank. And the the China Coast Guard claims ludicrously that the Vietnamese boat sank itself to make the China Coast Guard look bad. I, I don't, I, and hopefully no one believes that. No one should believe it because the China Coast Guard really, and uh, this was. A comment I made to uh, Xiao Shanju uh, of Voice of America, um, as she was, you know, covering uh, the project launch, that the China the China Coast Guard is not a, is not a Coast Guard in any recognizable sense. These are seagoing bugs and gangsters dressed up as Coast Guardsmen, and they are not performing the functions of a Coast Guard.
0: Hey, Hunter, I'm gonna I want to interject a question from the audience. So Robert Elliot. Uh, asks, how does this stuff get document documented? So in other words, when the China Coast Guard acts like thugs instead of acting like a Coast Guard, how does that get reported either uh, up the chain of command uh, to their national authorities or to us? How does the world find out what China's doing?
1: Well, this is a, this is a great question. And I think uh, this leads to a, a really a much deserved shout out, especially to the Philippines press. These reporters, are getting out on the water they go out on a fishing boat or they go out on you know they charter some other boat and they are the ones who are recording and they are capturing what is happening firsthand and that that is a critical way that we know uh of a lot we have learned of a lot of these incidents um another really good um uh, uh excellent source uh, you look at the Asia maritime transparency initiative so they published a terrific study by I uh, believe it was Olen- uh, Elena Bernini uh, a few years ago that was looking in depth at Chinese practices of kidnapping Vietnamese fishermen for ransom, and you can find it on their website. Uh, and uh, again, really powerful stuff. Especially it, it, there, there are moments when uh, it is inconvenient for government for certain governments to. Highlight this issue because again, you know, they understand they have to live with China on, you know, for they're not going away. So there are times where they they are trying to moderate, you know, the the, the nationalist um, sentiment of some of their populations. So sometimes they are not necessarily playing this up. There was a uh, an example of this, you know, in the Philippines when uh, there was a Chinese maritime militia boat that backed over a uh, a Filipino fishing boat in the middle of the night, and drives away, leaving everyone in the water to drown. The only reason no one dies is there was a, a Vietnamese fishing boat nearby that several hours later sees these people in the water and, you know, in accordance with its international obligations, comes to their aid. And the Duterte, this may, created a major political crisis in the Philippines. And the Duterte government was trying to like find a way to put... Put the kibosh on this and you know keep it on a little bit of a down low because they you know at the, at the time they had this uh this policy of trying to be more friendly to china uh, one of the things i think is really interesting you know speaking of you know that kind of that, that previous policy what was then Brent sadler talks about this in the in his article for the launch for, for the launch package in july is we have seen, you know, the impact of essentially, you know, this prototype, you know, maritime counterinsurgency effort uh, around the, the, this uh, incident with the West Capella in 2020, when uh, so this Malaysian chartered survey ship is undertaking a survey in, in the Malaysian Exclusive Economic Zone, and in in, in co- contrast with previous U.S. practice of essentially we'll take a ship and we'll drive through and then we'll sail away, um, Task Force 76 under the command of Rear Re- Fred Kacher and you know Seventh Fleet under um, Advisor Bill Murrs, they make this really concerted effort to show that we show support for Malaysia in its uh, in in undertaking and exercising its rights under the system of international law that we want to see enforced. So they make this concerted effort to demonstrate a persistent U.S. presence in the vicinity, both with capital ships, and then you know when the capital ships, of course, they're busy; they have to sail away eventually. Um, then they follow that up with these these lighter warships. The, you know, these they have two littoral combat ships with destroyer squadron seven based at Singapore at the time, and um, and so they 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 construct this persistent U.S. presence. And where I think we've been really worried that the Malaysians were going to you know abandon what they were doing, they stick it out and they they finish the work that they came there to do. And then you see, and Brent and Captain Sadler talks about this in his article, we see in following this, you know, there's initially some consternation as to, oh, are the Americans just doing the same old playbook again? But we didn't. And this this playbook, it, it, we, we ran a new play. Yeah. And then over, over the next year, you see three major regional powers change their stance, including the Philippines which does a complete 180. And, you know, when the the Chinese maritime militia shows up at Whitson Reef, they send out the Philippines Coast Guard and they start taking pictures. You know, again, another really good source of information about the maritime militia has been the operations of the Philippines Coast Guard at that time. And, you know, Ryan Martinson and Andrew Erickson did some terrific work following up on that based on the the stuff that they were publishing about the maritime militia.
0: Those are are good examples. I want to get to Jim again for a minute and talk a little bit about his article, You Have to Be There. So there's two uh, questions from from listeners. The first one, uh, T.S. Scott Me, says, I'm not hearing any solution to China's crimes. And so, Hunter, I think you just touched on some of that. Uh, and then there was another question uh, from Robert Elliott, which was, should we ratify UNCLOS? And I think those are kind of connected here. Uh, but I, I throw both of those to, to, to you, Jim, to you know, describe a little bit about your article, because I think you really kind of get to the crux of this matter. You have to be there. And you use an analogy of a beat cop. Uh, so, talk about that a little bit.
2: Yeah, thanks, Bill. Uh, thanks, Hunter. Yeah, to, to take the last one first. I mean, I mean, yes. The the answer is probably yes. We should right, we should uh, formally join the UNCLOS regime. I, as 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 our uh, listeners and watchers have, have undoubtedly know, uh, the United States has accepted has accepted UNCLOS as customary international law for many years right, since the 1980s. s. So, I mean, we do we do agree on the principles underlying the law of the sea. However. When you're in an international environment, that's a very difficult thing. That's a very difficult thing to, to tell people, because it requires a lot of legal argumentation. At that at that point, I mean, China can throw a, a Chinese representative can throw out a one liner and say, "Oh, these guys are trying to enforce what they're not even what they don't even believe in." At that point, you're sort of back on your heels and so forth. So again, I don't I don't think we're in a bad legal situation. I do think the politics of it does not work against the United States simply because simply because of that uh, because of that fact so that's a, so i think that's i think the answer is yes i think that just that just sets up sets us up better in international forums to 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 go out and defend the law of the sea defend the international legal order of the sea as, as we've known it since 1945. Wow. to go to go back to to go back to the more specifics on, on what i what i had to say what i had to say is blindingly simple i mean it's a, if, if you ask admiral wiley who hunter mentioned a few a few what, minutes ago uh, wrote a wonderful book in the 1960s called Military Strategy. He uh, he observes that the the what he called what he calls the man on the scene with a gun. This is the arbiter of who, of who wins an in international conflict. And what what he's talking about essentially essentially is putting uh, the the ability to put superior combat power on scenes of action at the right place at the right time. In order, in order to either defeat your adversary if you're in an open war, or to or to deter or to coerce that adversary if you're if you're in peacetime strategic competition, such as we are in the gray zone in, in, in Southeast Asia. So it's a, so it's a, so it's all about it's all about amassing it's a, it's all about amassing combat power where it's needed when it's needed and keeping it there until the until the dispute is actually settled. We're, I think that I think that's one place that we have really really fallen short. In, in the South China Sea and other bodies of water potentially around the world, whether it's uh, – I mean, pick, pick, pick your map and look around the, the boundaries of Eurasia, whether it's the East China Sea, Black Sea, Baltic Sea, Arctic Ocean, or whatever – we have it we have to we have to we have to be present on the scene and, and stay there in order to in order to get our way otherwise i mean if you think about what we do in the south china sea what do we do basically two things one we show up and do freedom of navigation cruises which we've been doing quite a bit for the last couple of years those are wonderful those are those are great statements of, of legal purpose and they and they defy china's claims to to indisputable sovereignty and sometimes as we as we just have also recently We'll send a carrier task force or a surface action group or whatever into, into the region to, to perform maneuvers. But what do we do? We always show up and we go away. If China is there 24-7, 365, and we're there just on occasion, look at look, look at the situation through the eyes of, of, a, of a Vietnamese or a Philippine a fisherman or a Malaysian fisherman. That's the person we're trying to embolden. If China holds the field uh, almost all of the time and the United States shows up and, and mounts a show of force once in a while, who are, you, who are you actually going to try to satisfy? Who's going to, who's going to do the coercing of the deterrence? I would say it's China just because they are there.
0: Yeah, great point. Uh, Robert Elliott also says a bunch of the articles in this package hammer the need for allies, too. And so, Jim, to your point, a second ago, you know, if China's there on the field all the time and we show up sort of intermittently come and go, uh, you know, I mean, it's a home game for them, right? It's a, it's a far away game for the United States. So how do we how do we balance that? Because we're we're a global power. We're looking to project naval power around the world, um, and so we've got you know commitments in Fifth Fleet, commitments in, commitments in Pacific Fleet, uh, in the Atlantic, in to NATO, etc., uh, with a navy of 300 ships, plus or minus, uh, on a good day. Um, you know, So so the 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 point about the need for allies is really critical here. So what are the chances, do you think, of, of getting the Australians, the French, the Brits, the uh, the Japanese to play in this game with us and our allies to help embo- embolden those Vietnamese, those Filipino, Malaysian fishermen, uh, et cetera? How, how's that going?
2: Yeah, I actually feel pretty good about the situation compared to especially to a few years ago. I mean, I mean, the the basic point is that we cannot want to defend navigational rights or rights under the law of the sea for a coastal state more than that coastal state wants in it itself. I mean, it's a, a Hunter mentioned uh, President Duterte. I think we're headed into also into another uncertain era with uh, with with the new president, Marcos, uh, an, off, an offshoot of the Marcos regime, which we had a painful experience in the 1980s. So I mean, I mean, so, so there's a diplomatic angle. To, to, I think we need to put it. We need to convince these 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 allies that they have to they have to want this. We can't want it more than they do. We can we can we can only help them help themselves. If we can if they want if they want to defend their navigational rights, their rights to fish, and do all those things that you can do in your exclusive economic zone, I think I think ultimately we'll, we'll be okay. I've been very heartened, however, I mean, uh, uh, furthermore, I should say by by the willingness of Japan to get involved. Uh, by, by the willingness of Australia to take an active hand in the region, India—we shouldn't forget the Quad, the, the Quad, this, uh, this emerging—not uh, uh, an alliance, but a coalition—to offset China's pretensions at sea. There's a, there's a, there are a fair amount of good things to, uh, that are happening now. We pay a lot of attention to weapon systems and all that kind of stuff, and I think there's good things happening there as well. But I actually I actually think simply because of China's behavior i don't think i don't think any i don't think anybody actually has any illusions about china in, anymore and that's a, and that's a, that's a real glue that could help bind together a coalition that will offset china's pretensions so if we can hold the line and if it i mean there's a lot of bad economic news coming out of china these days i mean if China's is at, actually actually at a turning point in which it, its fortunes economically diplomatically po- politically militarily are starting to turn down if we can hold the line for long enough I think, I think we might actually see this, this wave of Chinese, this, uh, what we call it, assertiveness, assertiveness, I would call it aggression, might start actually to recede.
0: So we are uh, kind of bumping up on our time limit here. Uh, Hunter, I'm going to give you a minute just to talk force structure, because in any conversation like this, people start to wonder, what should our Navy look like, right? What do we need to build? And uh, you mentioned Brian Clark is is one of the gurus when the Navy questions what its force structure should be, they, one of the people they always ask is retired Commander Brian Clark, and he's written for Proceedings a number of times. He's terrific, been on some of our panel discussions as well. Uh, and his article in, the, uh, in this Maritime Coin Package touches on that. But just talk briefly, if you would, about some of the things that Brian uh, talks about uh, in, in his article. And then on my to-do list is to try to get Brian scheduled for an upcoming uh, episode of the podcast where we can delve into that a little bit more.
1: Absolutely. And I think that the themes that Brian hits are themes that are really, they, they apply very broadly across the work of the project. And we, we see, you know, Dr. Holmes, met, you know, talks about, um, you know, the, the gist of what we need to do, uh, Jeffrey Till on, uh, from an almost an operational standpoint, and then, you know, the the four structure element, you know, Brian Clark handles that very well, and then how that, that, that fit it, like the and then brent sadler talks about how this fits into this political this broader political diplomatic strategy um and then brian kirk kirk talks about what that looks like on the deck plates it, it the, the the work of that the, that launch package it really hangs together in an exceptional way and the uh the forthcoming articles are really going to add to that and i think the key theme here is that of you have to and i think josh taylor puts it really well which is that you have to combine the current model of periodic high-end presence with a persistent low-end presence, these things go together. So, in Dr. Holmes's article, uh, I really like the point that he makes about how the British used to do it, where you have you know a, these lower-end forces that are more numerous and more persistent on station. You know, maybe a couple of frigates or you know colonial gunboats that the you know, British still had. You know, wooden gunboats on these distant stations, even in the age of armored cruisers, they had value because if you messed with that wooden gunboat, maybe you could take it on. But if you mess with a gunboat, you're getting the armored cruiser, which is steaming over the horizon, doing those higher-end, uh, more warfighting-focused missions. And so, um, you know, look at the Anglo-Zanzibar incident, shortest war in history. So they messed with the gunboat; they got a squadron of armored of armored cruisers. Um, obviously, that was you know a much more colonial situation. Um, uh, you know, it's grossly unequal for sure. But uh, that same logic applies when you're dealing with a great power. Um, You look at, uh, and I think uh, Jeffrey Till talks about this also, again, from a tactical operational art kind of standpoint, which is that the most successful counterinsurgents, the folks who are trying to defend the the, the political, trying to defend the the established status quo, the most successful counterinsurgents are those that start to adopt the tactics and methods in some respects of their insurgent opponents and then they use their superior resources to beat them at their own game. So the, the Sri Lankan Navy is instructive They, you know, when when they started out the uh, in you know the, the tunnel conflict, they were getting beat. They had these you know kind of big and ungainly patrol boats that were getting ambushed and uh, and, and really chewed up by by the Tunnel Tigers. And then you know, Professor Till describes how the Sri Lankan navy adapts and they adopt the the tact the the tactics and some of the force structure of the insurgency smaller more nimble more maneuverable gunboats and patrol and patrol craft rather than these heavier more ponderous vessels and they are they then use that and they turn and they turn that around and they beat the insurgents at their own game great, and i think great, great what this point
0: yeah, we are. We are. We're running out of time here, but you know, uh, I'd I fast forward to a couple of things. As a Navy guy, I have admired some of the some of the platforms that the U.S. Coast Guard is building right now, right? And I've advocated sometimes to folks that the fast responders, the national security cutters, uh, even the offshore patrol cutters that the Coast Guard is building, up gun them a little bit and buy some for the Navy. And I think that's that's a you know a touch on the kind of as you said the low-end force structure that you need there for every day with the, you know, the DDGs and the carrier strike groups coming through periodically, right? So unfortunately, we're out of time. This has been a great conversation. This is a really terrific series of articles in the July issue. And as Hunter, you said, we've got some more to come uh, playing out. And in, in, uh, we got Josh Taylor's uh, article in the August issue, which is a, a campaign plan. Like, how would you put together a campaign plan And I I tease it up in my uh, editor's page uh, by saying it's one of those rare things in the good idea category. It's something you could actually implement quickly. Uh, So great, great talking to you, Hunter. Uh, Professor Holmes, Jim Holmes, great to have you on the show again. Always good to to talk to you. Um, And I'm sorry that we're out of time, but that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. I want to thank our producer, Heather Legg, who uh, was the person who put together that great intro that we're now using. So I'm really excited about that. The show is brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute. Since 1873, our members have been the foundation of everything we do at the Naval Institute. To become a member, go to usni.org forward slash join. And until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.